after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. Appreciate that, Jen. John 6, verses 14 through 24. It's a scripture we're in this morning. I said last week that uh, there's one miracle outside the resurrection account and miracles that's in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and that was the feeding of the 5,000. There are many miracles that are in three of the Gospels, and not all four. This is one of them that's in all three. Jesus walking on the water. John 6, verses 14 through 24. Matthew 6, verses 45 through 56. And then, I'm sorry, Mark 6, verses 45 through 56. And then Matthew 14, verses 22 through 36. To understand what we just read in John chapter 6, we need some information that's not in John, but it's of the same account. When the Holy Spirit worked through the people who wrote Scripture, God allowed them to retain their own personality, their own perspective, uh, and that's why even when they tell the same account, it reads differently. And so to understand what's in John 6, I want to take us to Matthew 14. Because there's some things about this account that we don't get just from the book of John. And because uh, there, there's truth uh, in Matthew, and, and, and Matthew and John were both experiencing this firsthand with Jesus, uh, what they have to say is, is pretty crucial and pretty important. And so I, I want us to go, just real quick, let me read to you how this same account is told from Matthew's perspective in Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 36. After Jesus, he had dismissed them. He went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone on that mountainside praying. And the boat was already a considerable distance from land. He had sent the disciples on the boat to cross the sea of Galilee, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Well, come on then, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, uh, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, Jesus said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Matthew 14, 23-36. 
there, there's a lot here uh, in, in, in this account that it's easy to gloss over. And I don't want us to gloss over it because w- when we understand the context, we, we can better understand the content. And when we understand the content, it, it, it changes everything. The, the first thing I want to draw our attention to this 22 and 22 and 23. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get in the boat, go on ahead of him to the other side. While he dismissed them, what did he do? He went up on a mountainside by himself to do what? To pray. In my Bible, I've got pray like really super underlined and highlighted. He went by himself to pray. When you look at at the life of Jesus, there's two things that ought to stick out. He he could not be rattled. He he, he could not be rattled by neither people nor circumstances. And and he possessed this this power and authority that had not been seen like this ever. And the key to his peace and his power was his prayer life. All through the Gospels, we see that Jesus oftentimes went away by himself. The Bible either says to a lonely place, a solitary place, a deserted place. It means there weren't any distractions around so that he could pray and communicate with his father and let his father communicate to him. When you go back and look at the Gospels, these disciples who, who, who walked with Jesus, uh, who were with him through, through, through all of his public ministry, they had seen him do incredible miracles, turning the water to wine, healing incurable diseases, restoring sight to the blind, uh, functional legs to cripples. I, I assume raise the dead. They had seen Jesus do all of this stuff. And they asked Jesus to teach them how to do one thing, how to pray. Now, if, 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 if God, if I was around Jesus and I saw him like turn water into wine, that might be the thing I asked him to do. <laughs> if I saw him heal lame people, I might, God, that's what I want. I saw him heal incurable disease. Well, God, tell me how to do that, right? The one thing they asked wasn't how to do anything except pray. Why? Because they understand what we don't. That the key to the peace and the power of God is not in learning how to do it or perfect it. It's in a consistent solitary prayer relationship between the disciple and the Father. You understand? He went by himself to pray. The scripture goes on. He's praying. And he sees them struggling to the guy's on a boat. The boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Jesus said, I want you to get in the boat. I want you to go to the other side. And he's watching from the mountainside, and he can see where they are. And they're working and straining. They're out away from the shore, and he can see the wind was against them. Now, when the Bible's when it says the wind was against it, what it literally means, if you want to take notes, it means the wind was contrary to them or in opposition to them. Let me just ask you, have you ever been in a situation that was in opposition to you? Did you ever, have you ever set out on a course that you, even if you knew, like, this is from God, like, I know I'm right, I know I'm good, I'm not, but, but all you get is opposition in your face? Where it seems like the situation and the world and everything is 
contrary to you? Now, these guys were being obedient. Jesus said, get in a boat and go over there. They said, okay, we're going to get in a boat and go over there. And the moment they do that, they face opposition. Where it seems that everything thrown around them is contrary to them. It's interesting that even when we set out to be obedient, even when we set out to do what we're, you know, that even then we face great opposition and people and situations and circumstances are contrary to us. And Jesus knows what's happening. You've been there. Right? But, but watch what happens. Now, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. That's how the King James Version reads it. And, and, and in my, I have an old, older Bible, and it says during the fourth watch of the night. Probably if you have a Bible and you're looking, it'll say during, like nearing sunrise or in, er, very early in the morning, that type thing. Well, it's important that we know that it was during the fourth watch of the night Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Why is it important for us to know that it was during the fourth watch of the night? Can I tell you? Because back in these days, the evening was divided into four three-hour sections. From 6 to 9 at night, 9 to 12 at night, 12 to 3 in the morning, uh, and, uh, and 3 to 6 in the morning. And so the Bible says it was during the fourth watch of the night. So what time was it? During the sixth. And it was probably at the beginning of that, right around three o'clock in the morning. Jesus sent them away while it was still light. And now at three o'clock in the morning, he sees that they've been struggling for about eight hours. Jesus saw them struggle at the beginning of the journey. And Jesus did nothing for them. Until the fourth watch. Have you ever been there? When it's the fourth watch and Jesus still hadn't showed up? Have you ever felt like, like God, you at, you put me, you allowed me, and then you abandoned me? Like, I, I thought I was doing what you wanted me to do, and you're nowhere around. And you are the God that sees me, and you still don't show up. Right? You ever felt like that? This was the disciples' story during the fourth watch of the night. You know why it was important for Jesus to wait till the fourth watch of the night? Let me tell you this. Because at three o'clock in the morning, it's the darkest the night will ever get and it's the coldest the night will ever get from three to six. And Jesus, it's as if Jesus is telling, look, I'm going to put you in a position that it can't get any darker and it can't get any colder. You will not feel any more alone than what I'm going to let you get to before I show up. Do you know why he does that? Because sometimes when, when, when we first are walking with Jesus and we first experience a need, he shows up at the first watch of the night. And we like that. Because we often feel like, God, this just happened. Show up right now and do something, right? Like, step it right now. And sometimes he does during the first watch because he knows our faith can't handle anymore. We're so tender-footed. He goes, ah, uh, knucklehead, God, take care of you. I'm going to show up real early. But the second time something happens, if he shows up during the first watch, we don't ever grow in trusting him and knowing. And so the second time, he'll wait till the second watch of the night. We've got to wait a little bit longer. You know what happens the next time? He waits till the third watch. It's not as bad as it could be. I mean, it's bad. It's still pretty dark, still pretty cold, but it's not as bad. And then he shows up, and like, whoo, he did it again. Thank you. And then the next time. 
And the problem is when God is waiting in those moments for the fourth watch of the night, in our minds, well, God, you did it early then, and you did it early then, and you did it. Why are you waiting so long? Right? He said, because it's not dark enough and it's not cold enough for you yet. And sometimes God waits well past the fourth watch till you're already dead. See Lazarus. Like he wasn't hours late, he was days late. Some of you are in the fourth watch right now. And you're thinking, God, what? You let, you're really going to do me like that? You left me all alone? I believe you see. I believe you know. Like, For some of you, it's going to be a lot longer than the fourth watch. I'm going to tell you that right now. And, and during the fourth watch of the night, what's the Bible? The Bible he said, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. Here's what I love about that. Jesus came to them on that which they feared the most. Did you catch that? Jesus came to them on that which they feared the most. He said, I'm going to use the vehicle of your fear to, to draw close to you and to call you to me. And this is what happens in our lives so often. That thing we fear the most, we pray against that. God, please don't let this. God, please prevent this. God, please don't allow this. And God says, listen, I may want to allow that because it's in that thing that you fear that I'm going to walk to you and call you to me. Don't be afraid. And so many times we want God to stop and prevent that thing that we're fearful of. And God says, no, no, no. I need to get that. I need to allow that to intersect your life. And I need to wait till it's the darkest and the coldest because it's on that thing that I'm going to walk to you and call you to me. This making sense? And so he walks to them on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, in some translations, it might say they were frightened. My Bible says actually terrified. Like they were, they were, they were scared. They weren't just they weren't just fearful, they were scared. You know, when you, when you were little and you were really scared, you know, they were terrified. It's a ghost. Just immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. When, when, when the Bible uses the word courage, when, when God commands his people to be courageous, Joshua 1, 8, 9, be strong and courageous. Don't be dismayed. I'm with you wherever you go. All through the Bible, God commands his people to be courageous. It means literally, it means to be optimistic and to be of good cheer. That's what courage means. Be optimistic right now. But God, it's the fourth hour. Be of good cheer. But God, there's waves all around me. Be optimistic. Be of good cheer. So I looked up in the Bible the definition for courage. I'm sorry, I looked up in the dictionary, the definition of courage. And the dictionary says, the ability to do something that's frightening. Well, I guess that's okay. I mean, it just seems pretty generic. You know, bravery is the act of being brave. It just doesn't, it doesn't say anything. And so I looked at the biblical definition of courage. And that literally means to good cheer, boldness, or confidence. So I know it's the fourth hour right now. I know the storm you're in right now, but have some boldness about you, man. Buck up. Have some confidence. Be of good cheer. Be optimistic right now. Well, how can I be optimistic? It's a storm. Well, Jesus is going to address that in just a minute. But the command is to be optimistic, to be of good cheer. Here's what I know. That courage is the opposite of fear. That courage is the opposite of fear. I mean, it, it, 
And every time God commands courage of his people, it's always in opposition to something they're afraid of. And he says, I know you're afraid of it right now. All what I want from you is quit freaking out. Push back against fear in opposition. See, did you notice that when the winds were, were contrary, the winds were in opposition to them and response to the opposition of wind, Jesus says, oppose that with courage? See, courage is faith with skin. Courage is is faith in the flesh. And it's always the antidote to fear. I I, I wonder, you know, these past couple years, remember COVID when that was, when that was, existed? Remember when that was a thing? And everybody, and it was a thing. I don't want to make light of it. It was devastating. But do you remember how fearful the world was? And how fearful God's people were? Do you remember? It seems every time there's a big deal and a storm. God's people get as scared as anybody else. Remember the bank collapse in 08? And how scared everybody was? And how scared God's people were? Remember when everything was shut down and closed and Kids couldn't go to school and you couldn't go to work and everybody was like, oh my gosh, is this the end of the world or the mark of the beast and all this crazy stuff? And I just wonder if at some point God would say, listen, I'm still on the throne and you might not understand what's going on. You don't have to. Just be optimistic and of good cheer and quit freaking out. Right? But yet, every time something happens, and so in this moment, Peter speaks up. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. And then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. If it's you. Now listen, there's not a lot of faith at this point in Peter. Did you catch what he said? If it's you. I'm not even sure you're around right now, Jesus. Because if you're around, why is it the fourth watch? If you're around, why are we in the storm? If you're around, how come you didn't step in? So I'm not even sure you're... So if it is you, which I'm not convinced it is yet, but if it is you... You ever been there? God, I don't even know if you're paying attention right now. If you are around... You know, the devil... He's not real original, but he's pretty effective. The devil's ploy from the Garden of Eden was to get us to do one thing, and that's doubt God. That's what he told Eve. Did God really? Does he really want the best? Because it seems like he's holding out. He's not original, but he's real effective. All he has to do is get us to doubt God. And that's what Peter did. If it's you. Be very careful, friends. When we start doubting the power and the presence and the purpose of God. All that is, is the evil one. Don't listen to him. The Bible says he is the father of lies. Everything he tells you is going to be a lie. He doesn't know how to tell the truth. Truth is not in him. 
So all this doubt comes from him. So Peter says, if it's you. If it's, if it's you, come, call me to come out. Do you know why Peter got out of the boat? It wasn't because he wanted to walk on water. That would be ludicrous. It, it, it wasn't because he'd be like, yeah, I, call me because I want to walk on water. Because in your face, you 11 disciples, suck it. Like that wasn't his motivation. What? Come on, man. Like, let, you know, why did he get out of the boat? I'm going to tell you why. Because he just wanted to be next to Jesus. It's the only reason. I want to be next to you so much. Tell me to step out this boat. If I got to walk on, if I got to step into what, if I got to jump out of a boat to be next to you, so be it. I just want to be next to you. And because the desire of his heart was to be next to his Jesus, a miracle happened. Do you understand that? Like miracles. This type of faith moves the hand of God. I just want to be next to you. Well, if you want to be next to you, I'm going to put you in a situation. And Peter walked on water. Absolutely amazing. Here's what I want you to know. There's going to be moments in the Christian's walk that will require great moves of faith and courage. Now, here's what here's your chance. Those moves, those moves will always be unprecedented of any move before that you've had. There will be moments in the Christian's walk with Jesus that he will call you to move in faith and courage. And that call will require of you an unprecedented step. Do you know how many times Peter walked on water before this time? How many times did anybody in the Bible walk on water before this time? They walked through the water. So this move, Peter was facing an unprecedented call of God that would require of him an unprecedented move of faith that he had never experienced before. That's the way it's going to be. That's the way it's going to be for people who follow Jesus. He will call us to moves of faith that will be unprecedented to anything we've experienced before. Will we step out of the boat? It's interesting to me. When Jesus says, all right, come to me, Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water. Here's what we miss. Most of us don't have a problem getting out of the boat as long as we're stepping into another boat. Right? Like, God, I'll step out of the boat as long as you give me another boat. And we talk about it in terms of a step of faith as long as my faith is into another boat. We talk about, well, I'm just being wise. I'm going to step out into nothing. God doesn't call his people to step out of another. God always calls his people to step into something. And it sounds real spiritual. It's just not always biblical. We do not, God's people don't have a problem stepping from boat to boat to boat to boat to boat. The question is, when's the last time I stepped out of the boat onto the water? You understand? Now, if you never have, I'm certainly not going to be one to blame. You got 11 cats who'd walk with Jesus who didn't have the faith to step out of the boat or on the water. But you had one who did. So the question is do I want to be the 11 or do I want to be the one? Got it? All right, so. But when he saw he's on the water now, when he saw the wind, uh, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out to the Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. 
You have little faith. Jesus said, why did you doubt? You know what's interesting about this passage right here? It, it, it says, when he saw the window, there's already, and beginnings. How do you begin to sink? Like the next time you jump in a pool or a lake, think, at what point am I beginning to sink? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like you just sink. I think it was like this, like, oh, crap. You know? Peter walked on over to Jesus. And the Bible says when he saw the wind and, you know, obviously the waves around him, he was afraid. What was Jesus' words to Peter when he was afraid? Why did you doubt? But Peter was afraid. I mean, look in the Bible. It says, it says uh, he was afraid. In verse 31, just reach out his hand. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? If he was afraid, why did Jesus say, why did you doubt? It seems like if he was afraid, Jesus would have said, why are you so afraid? Not, why did you doubt? Apparently, there's something more going on here. Because if the issue was fear, Jesus would address the fear. But the issue wasn't fear. The issue was doubt. He was afraid, and Jesus said, I don't want to talk about why you're afraid. I want to talk about your doubt. Why did you doubt? Here's what I know. Doubt is what causes fear. At the heart of a fearful life is a heart of doubt. Here's what happens. When we doubt God's power and presence, everything's fearful. Why did you doubt? What was Peter's doubt? Jesus wants to address his doubt. What was his doubt? Think about it for a minute. Most people, when they teach this passage, they talk about he was, he, he, he was afraid because he saw the wind and the waves and the storm, and he doubted that he was going to sink. That he wasn't going to sink. He was afraid. Can I keep standing on water? I'm going to suggest you that Peter didn't doubt if he could walk on water because he was walking on water. Peter didn't doubt that he could do it because he was doing it. It would be more like me telling you, you know what? All of a sudden right now, I doubt this stage will hold me. Well, I'm standing on it. Why would I doubt it? So Peter got his eyes off Jesus, saw the wind of waves, and he doubted. What was his doubt? It wasn't that he could walk on water because he was. So go back to the beginning of this whole thing. When Peter saw this thing coming towards him, he said, verse 28, Lord, if it's you. That was his doubt. His doubt was, even though I believed at one time that it was you, now I'm in the middle of it, and I don't know if you're still around. The circumstances around me are convincing me that maybe you have gone, like maybe you're not capable, because although I believe it's you, I'm in the middle of some bad stuff right now, and all of a sudden I'm doubting your power and your presence. It wasn't the wind. It wasn't his ability to walk on the water because he was. He was doubting the power and the presence of Jesus in the midst of that storm. And doubting the person of Christ, he began to sing. That's why Jesus said, I want to talk about your doubt. And isn't that how it works with us? Like I believe that Jesus, like you're in me, and then something happens and the storm gets really bad, the circumstances get really bad, and then we doubt again him. We start sinking. See, Peter doubt Peter saw the circumstances around him and doubted God's presence with him. Don't let that be your story. Don't let the circumstances that you see around you cause you to doubt the presence of God with you. Because the moment that happens, fear, doubt, doubt that leads to fear, and you start sinking. 
when we doubt the presence of God, I'm telling you this, that we will be fearful in every storm. Here's what's going to happen. God's going to do one of two things in storms. This wasn't the first storm Jesus went in with his disciples. He was in another storm prior to this with his disciples. This wasn't his first storm with them, nor theirs with him. The first storm he was in with them was Matthew 8, a few chapters earlier. Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. Why? Because he's so close to the Father, he's not afraid. Remember that presence thing we talked about earlier? He just wanted to be with. The disciples went and, and, and woke Jesus saying, Jesus, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. So that was the first storm Jesus was in. And in that storm, the, the disciples are afraid again, and Jesus wakes up, and what does he do? He rebukes the wind and the waves. He says, storm, shut up, sit down. The, the waves sit down. The wind shuts up. Matthew 14 is different. Because in Matthew 8, Jesus spoke to the storm and changed it. In Matthew 14, Jesus never addressed the storm. Who did he address? The disciple. Jesus, God's going to do one of two things in every storm. He's either going to speak to the storm or he's going to speak to the disciple. Here's the problem. We always pray that he'll speak to the storm and shut it down. And sometimes God says, I don't want to speak to, if I want to speak to the storm, I'd speak to the storm. Right now, I want to speak to you. Here's what I know. God will either speak to the storm or he'll speak to the disciple. But whatever he speaks to, stuff's going to start changing. When we're here, when you're in a storm and everything's against you and you're begging and pleading in prayer and you're even fasting and getting all the stuff cleaned up in your life and you're repentant and all this, God, I'm asking you, I need you. Please move. Please intervene. God, please, I need you to step in. You're my only hope. It's the fourth hour. It's already days late. Stuff's done. You got to step in. And God doesn't do anything. Do you know why? Because God's not speaking to that storm in your life. He's trying to speak to you. The only reason that storm that you've been praying for for years and years and years has not changed is because God's not talking to it. If God wanted to talk to it, it would change. The point, he's talking to you. And so many times we get in those storms and we beg and plead and we get everybody else around us to pray on our behalf and everybody else's behalf. And God says, no. There's something in about you. Do you understand? And until we say, Lord, if it's you, talk to me, nothing changes. Some of you are like, God, you've got to step into my finances. It is a mess and a storm and I'm sinking. And God says, I'm not going to talk to your finances. I'm going to talk to you. Talk to your heart. Quit, quit coveting and wanting what everybody else has and living off your credit card and start living within your means and tithing. Let me talk to your finances. Let me talk to you. You want me to do something about your marriage? You want to pray about your marriage and your spouse? I don't, I'm not going to deal with that storm. I'm going to deal with you. Husband, love your wife and sacrifice for her. Give up your life for her. And wife, freaking love your husband and submit to him. I'm not going to heal that marriage. I want to heal you. Right? Those relationships that are so terrible in your life, in your family, you want God to change them? Guys, I'm not going to change them. I'm going to change you. What you're supposed to do is go to them and make peace with them and apologize for what you've got to apologize for without expecting anything from them. In every storm, God's going to speak. He'll either be the storm or he'll be with you. And if you're in a storm, you're going to have a storm, and it's not changed yet, God's not going to talk to you. He's going to talk to you. Can it go just a little bit more? 
See, in, in Matthew 8, Jesus always showed that he could calm a storm. In Matthew 14, he wanted to show that he could equip his people. It's a different purpose. You know, fear has always been part of the human's experience since the beginning. Fear was, fear was a part of the Garden of Eden, and fear was there in the Garden Tomb, outside the Garden Tomb. F fear was with us since the fall. Fear was with us all the way up through Pentecost. Pentecost is when the disciples in fear were in upper room and the Holy Spirit came. But, but do you ever notice this? That it was at Pentecost that fear stopped being a part of the disciples' lives. After Pentecost, there's nowhere in the Bible where it says they were, fear, they were afraid of man, of persecution, nor of peril. Everything changed at Pentecost. Up to that point, it had been a part of human story from the beginning. At Pentecost, you will not read anymore in the Bible of God's people ever being afraid. Think about it. Fear is written of God's people is written out of the disciples' story after Pentecost. Why? Here's why. Jesus said in, in, at the end of Matthew, he said, Lo, I am with you to the very end of the age. When did God become the with us one in each individual person? Jesus said, unless I go to the Father, I cannot send you the comforter who will be with you in each one of you. Jesus, in his human form, could be at one place at one time, as humans can do. But when he went to the Father, sent the Holy Spirit, now within every Christ follower is the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. Now he became with uh, the with us one in every one of his people at Pentecost. And here's the deal. Where the Spirit of God is, fear cannot coexist. So the disciple of Jesus has no reason to be afraid. If it was written out of the disciples' lives after Pentecost, why is it so prevalent in ours? Yeah, I don't have an answer either. What could happen if even a few disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, decided, you are with me, I will face the storms and the oppositions with good cheer and optimism. There is now, for, therefore, nothing to fear. Let me just wrap up with this. There's so much more I could talk about. Courageous faith hears the voice of Jesus or the prompting of the Spirit and simply responds courageously with optimism and good cheer. Once I know God has spoken, there's no more fear. Here, here's what a, Peter had such incredible faith up to this point. He, he had faith to step out of the boat. That was great faith. And then all of a sudden, he doubted and lost it. Here's what I know. Faith is only present tense. Like biblically, faith is present tense. That's why James says, when you pray, don't doubt. Because every time we every time we pray, we have to believe in faith. It's always just present tense. We don't get to live off the faith of the past. It always has to be present tense. So anyway, just real quick. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand, caught him. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Now, don't miss this. When they climbed into the boat. So, so you have to understand that, that, that what happened here, it, it, they both did. Whatever they did, they both did. So don't think that, G, that, that the disciples reached down and grabbed Peter and pulled him up like a drowning man in the boat. You know, he flops over and like, and Jesus like, no, I got this and just steps over. Whatever they did, they both did. So either they both were rescued from the sea and pulled the pole with the edge, or they both like, no, nah, I got this good. I'm good now. And just slipped over. Because they both, it, it, same word. So here's what we got to come to terms with. Does a drowning man have the power to make a walking man drown? Or in God, does a walking man have the power to make a drowning man walk? 
That's Bible. The walking man, Jesus, has the power to make the drowning man, Carl, walk on water. All I have to do is cry out and grab the hand that he's extended. I'm going to be done right after this last thing. When they crossed over and landed at Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the, uh, let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. This is an amazing passage. I don't think it's much press. When it says touch the edge of his cloak, what it means literally is the hem of his garment. See, God gave the command back in Numbers 15 and Deuteronomy 22 that his people were to wear a cloak. Basically, it was a poncho. Had a hole cut in the middle, put over with four corners. And the command in, in Numbers 15 and Deuteronomy 22 is that on each of the four corners, they were to weave a tassel of woven thread with one blue thread running through them on each of the four corners. That was to remind God's people of the priority and the commands of God to obey them and that there was power in it. And every time they saw the tassels, they would remember the word of God, the promises of God, the power of God, and they would obey it. And, and so when it says here, that if they could just touch. Now, now here's why this is so important. Because if you were to go back to Malachi 4.2, Malachi 4.2 has this one little prophecy in it. And it says, the son of righteousness will, righteousness will rise with healing radiating from his wings. That word wings in the Old Testament Hebrew is literally edge or hem. So what the Jews believe is that with the Messiah, there would be such authority in the hem of his garment that healing would radiate from it, that if all they had to do was touch that, they would be healed. See the woman with the issue of blood. Reached out unknown to Jesus and touched the hem of his garment, the tassel that was there, indicating the power and promise and command of God's word. And that faith exercised that if she touched that, according to what the prophecy in Malachi 4.2, she'd be healed. Touched it and she was healed immediately. And that's why these people, if they could just touch the hem, because of the prophecy in Malachi 4.2, healing radiates the belief in that, the faith in it, if I can just touch that. And they were. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And so I just got to ask. I'm going to be done. Come on up here, Jeff. I got to. I got to be done. What is it that you're fearful of right now? There's a root to that that is doubt. What's at the root of that fear? It's doubt of something, of God. God doesn't, I don't, I don't know that God wants to address, I know he doesn't want to address every storm, but he does want to address every disciple. So in this moment, let him address. If you're his, let him address you, his disciple. What's the doubt? And in the middle of that, I challenge you to do as Peter did. If it's you, God, call me. And the moment he does, step out of the boat, not into another boat, but into water. And if there's some if thing in your life, That you think, if I could just touch the hem of his garment. If I could reach out in affirmation and faith. That in him is healing. And it radiates from him. I just need to touch him. Then in faithful submission to the Father. Reach out and touch him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you 
that you don't leave us alone in storms. I, I, I thank you that you either speak to the storm or to the disciple, and more often than not, you talk to us. We want you to talk to the storm, but you don't. Say, you say, no, I'm going to talk to you. Father, would you help us listen? There are some here, God, who in this moment are submitting themselves in faith to the authority of who you are in your word. And if you've never done that, I invite you in this moment just real simply to say, Father, I trust you. Jesus, thank you that you died on the cross so I could be forgiven. I submit to the fact that I am a sinner and I need your forgiveness. So I accept it right now. Wash me of it all and make me clean and new. I receive it right now. Father, there's, there, there, there's others here who are yours. Who, who need... They're in the fourth, fourth watch. And, and they need you to show up. And they're willing to say, I submit myself to the authority of the Word of God and I'm going to reach out and touch it. Father, would you be so kind in your mercy and your grace to heal? Father, there's some that you're calling to step out from boat, not to another boat, but from boat to water. We believe you're with us. Cause the water to hold us up. Jesus, we love you. And you are worthy of celebration. We pray these things in your name, amen. Now listen, we're going to sing. Uh, and I just want you to keep doing whatever business that the Holy Spirit needs to do with you. Just let him do it. If you've got to go, I understand that's not a problem. But, but I'm going to be here. John is here. John is down here. You know, if you uh, McElroy's over there, you want to just sit and, and, and pray with one of us. Just kind of stay where you are or after service. We're going to be here. Just kind of approach us. I'm going to be right here if you want to even pray during we're singing. But don't rush through this because I think God's talking to people in the storm. He's not talking to the storm now. You understand? Let's sing.